Presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're going over the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay, guys, welcome to episode 15 of First Years. Today, we are starting Prisoner of Azkaban, and I could not be more excited. So for this episode, you read chapters one through four. So let's just dive right in. So the beginning of this book is really interesting. And as I was reading it, I was struck by this darkness that was around Harry, like physically. It's the middle of the night. He's under his sheets doing his homework, trying not to wake the Dursleys up. And then it hit me that this darkness is Harry yet again hiding what he is while he's at the Dursleys. Now, we do see darker themes in these first four chapters, but similarly to being hidden in the cupboard or being told to go upstairs and pretend he doesn't exist, he's locked up in this darkness, the way the Dursleys prefer, of course, and he's forced to stay up late and do his homework in secret. In this first chapter, we're starting to see a shift. And I actually, I would almost argue that the entire beginning of this book, we're starting to see a shift. Finally, Harry gets a really good birthday with presents from friends who really care about him and they've given him thoughtful presents and cards. But we also see a shift here where Ron is going to get a new wand as well. We also get introduced to a new place. Hogsmeade, which we learn is an all-wizard town that's close by to Hogwarts. So we're almost getting a fresh start here. And when we're speaking of changes and shifts, we see Harry start to negotiate his position in the house. He makes a deal with Uncle Vernon about signing the permission form if he is to remember all of the lies that he needs to tell Aunt Marge while she's here. And that's something super powerful for Harry, where he's like, you know what? If they want me to do this thing that I don't really want to do, then I'm going to get what I want out of it. And speaking of Aunt Marge, I'm not even sure I even know where to start with her. Like, what kind of upbringing did Vernon and Marge have to make them absolutely hate Harry and adore Dudley? Vernon and Petunia have the magic thing that they hate, so although it doesn't justify their abuse of Harry, it at least provides a reasoning. So, What's up with Marge? She is cruel to Harry because why? She talks about drowning puppies and encouraging beatings of Harry, and I cannot for the life of me understand where it comes from. And if she's like this, and Vernon is like this, like, what? I just don't understand how someone like that, or at least, you know, I know, you know, siblings aren't the same, but if, you know, Vernon, I would argue that there are many similarities between Vernon and Marge. So it's like, what kind of guy is Vernon when Harry's not around? Like, what did, who was the person that Petunia fell in love with? I am so curious to know why these two turned out the way they did. And then I'm going to bring up a point that I've brought up a few times, so please bear with me. We get bad blood 
Aunt Marge brings it up this time. Bad blood when she's talking about Harry and she's making the example with the dogs that she breeds, we get bad blood. And in this moment, we see Harry lose control of his magic. And I think it makes sense for this to happen. We, we see underage wizards do weird magic before they get to Hogwarts all the time. Harry's hair is a prime example. Escaping to the roof of the school is another. Setting the boa constrictor free at the zoo. Magic is within you. It's genetic. It's, it's part of who you are. And so it makes perfect sense for it to be influenced by your emotions. And of course, because this is what we do, I looked into it. So I did some research on emotional effects of the body. And so emotions that are experienced and expressed openly and freely tend to not have an impact on our health. It's the repressed emotions that can take our energy away, have negative effects on the body, and ultimately lead to health problems. Feelings of helplessness and hopelessness can actually create chronic stress, which then upsets things in the body like hormones as well as our immune system. I actually looked into emotional outbursts as well. So emotional outbursts can occur in a variety of people because of varying different circumstances. Some can come from exhaustion or low blood sugar, while others can happen because of a chronic condition. And actually sometimes with being unable to control your emotions can include like being overwhelmed by your feelings, feeling afraid that, like feeling afraid to express your emotions, um, and under, like misunderstanding, not fully realizing why you feel the way that you feel, things like that. So if we look at this, Harry, I think, kind of falls into this category. So Harry has been burying his anger at this woman all week and has finally reached his boiling point where he cannot sit by and let her abuse him verbally anymore. And he doesn't even care to be at the Dursleys anymore. He he stayed before because he wouldn't have had anywhere to go, but now he's perfectly okay with being like, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. I just know I need to leave this place right now. And so Harry not just has been repressing his feelings all week, I would almost argue has been repressing his feelings his entire life. You know, he has never been given an outlet uh to express what he actually feels because he can't talk back. If he expresses anger or anything like that to the Dursleys, he's going to get punished. So he ends up harboring all of these emotions and feeling afraid to express his emotions, especially in this moment where he's like, I cannot lose my shit. Otherwise, I am not going to be allowed to go to Hogsmeade and I'm going to have a really terrible year at Hogwarts. So I think this, instead of it manifesting in him sort of losing his cool um, in a way of, of, of like muggle emotions, it's, it very much comes out through his own magic by blowing up Marge. And then he doesn't hesitate to leave. So once he's successful in leaving, we see the moment where he transitions into panic mode. Because after all, even though we are rooting for him to stand up to his family finally and leave, he is only 13 years old. He gets this burst of magic, finally decides he has had enough, but it is completely normal that after that high of finally breaking free of something you've been wanting to let go of for a while, to then be like, oh shit, now what do I do? But luckily, we have the night bus to help us out. But before that, Harry has a rather creepy moment where something is watching him. And the first thing we get, just like in the last book, is the eyes gleaming back at him. 
And we spoke about eyes in episode eight when we talked about Dobby. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was vision and thus visions relating to religion or within meditation. We also spoke about eyes as perceiving, revealing, and understanding. And especially with what we find out later in Flourish and Blots, it gets creepy. Like most of the things in this book so far, it feels darker, right? Like Dobby feels a little odd in a, hey, what was that kind of a way? But this feels like, okay, it's the dead of night. There's something watching me in the alleyway. What the F? And Harry describes it as like a dog, which I think is already a darker image as well. And so when Harry's in Diagon Alley and he sees a book on death omens, he sees the cover and it says, quote, it showed a black dog, large as a bear with gleaming eyes. It looked oddly familiar, unquote. So what could this mean? Harry has the moment where he first runs away, where he sees gleaming eyes and what looks like a dog looking at him in the middle of the night. And now he sees something similar to it on the cover about death omens. What do you think this means for what we have in store for this book? Especially when we're talking about eyes as perceiving, revealing, understanding, and yet we're in this moment where Harry doesn't really understand what's going on. And even when he is trying to figure out where to go, he doesn't really know what to go, he calls the night bus completely by accident. So what do we think is going to be revealed, if anything? What are we going to understand later? And what is this creepy moment that Harry has? So when Harry does get picked up by the night bus, we see an amazing bit of magic. It will pick up any stranded witch or wizard and bring them anywhere they'd like to go as long as it's not underwater. Like an emergency lift service, which I think is really smart, although I do have a question. Why is there no spell to make sure everything stays put on the bus? Okay, I have two questions. And are there multiples around the wizarding world? Because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the night bus goes all throughout the UK. So it can go through different countries. So is there one? Is it just that fast? Are there multiple? Is there one for France? Is there one for Spain? I would love to know. So in this book, we are introduced to a character named Sirius Black. The beginning of chapter two, we're introduced to him via the news, the muggle news, and it is described that he is an escaped convict and is considered armed and dangerous. And we get a line from Vernon saying that they don't need to tell him that Sirius Black is bad news because of how he looks. And for those of you who are listening to our last episode, I cannot help but think about the discussion we had. Like, if you were to take the fact that he was an escaped prisoner out of the equation, Uncle Vernon still would probably think that he was up to no good because he looks filthy. He's stereotyping someone based on how they look, which I think we absolutely see today, especially with people of color being deemed suspicious or up to no good just because they're someone of color and they're not white. Then we find out later on a little bit more about Sirius Black on the night bus. So he's no longer just a detail from a previous chapter. He has significance in the wizarding world. He's a prisoner that was in Azkaban for murdering 13 people with a single curse. And if you can hear me laugh while I say that line in this edit, it's because I could not say that it took me five times to say that sentence. Anyway, so we learn a little bit more about him and people are talking about Sirius being mad. And it says, quote, if he weren't 
when he went to Azkaban, he will be now. I'd blow myself up before I set foot in that place, unquote. So there's never been a breakout from Azkaban before. And remember how I said when we were reading Chamber of Secrets that we would learn more about Azkaban in this book? Well, we get some more info here. And we see how it's not a place you can just send people, like Hagrid, casually. It says, quote, Everyone he'd ever heard speak of it did so in the same fearful tone. Hagrid, the Hogwarts gamekeeper, had spent two months there only last year. Harry wouldn't soon forget the look of terror on Hagrid's face when he had been told where he was going, and Hagrid was one of the bravest people Harry knew. Unquote. This place is no joke. So people keep saying that Sirius Black is mad, but I believe it's Mr. Weasley makes it makes the point that he was intelligent enough to escape from Azkaban. He says, quote, he was clever enough to escape from Azkaban and that's supposed to be impossible. It's been three weeks and no one's seen hide nor hair of him and I don't care what Fudge keeps telling the Daily Prophet. We're no nearer catching black than inventing self-spelling wands, unquote. So when Molly and Arthur are discussing whether or not to tell Harry about Sirius Black, Harry overhears a little, a few more details. So Molly says he will be perfectly safe at Hogwarts, and Arthur says we thought Azkaban was perfectly safe. If Black can break out of Azkaban, he can break into Hogwarts. And we learn that Sirius Black has been saying he's at Hogwarts, he's at Hogwarts in his sleep, and that he lost absolutely everything the night that Harry stopped Voldemort. And he has been in Azkaban for 12 years. And so we see not just the threat to Harry, but we also see the deep-seated fear of how things were in the wizarding world when Voldemort was at large, you know, where Harry isn't allowed after dark. And we overhear a witch um, say that she won't let her children out alone until he's back behind bars. And people tend to have a lot of faith in the Azkaban guards getting him back, right? So my question to you is... Whose side are you on? Are you on Molly's side or are you on Arthur's side? Would you tell Harry that someone was after him or would you trust in Hogwarts and in Dumbledore and sort of just let this 13-year-old boy enjoy his school year as much as he can without worrying him? So we have two things to analyze here. We have a firebolt and we have Ron's wand. So the firebolt is made of ash and it has birch twigs. So Ollivander actually writes about ash wands and he talks about how they get very attached to their masters and should not be passed on to another one. He says that ash is stubborn and that witches and wizards with ash wands aren't swayed from their beliefs or their work very easily. So their owners are stubborn, but they're not arrogant. When we look at ash in general as just a wood outside of the magical realm, well, in the magical realm, but not the Harry Potter magical realm. It's associated with prosperity, protection, and health. And it represents the same kind of power that water has, which at least to me seems like it can be good or bad because the ocean can be gentle and safe, but it can also be extremely dangerous and merciless in a storm. It's also the wood that the world tree Yggdrasil is made out of in Viking mythology. So it said that the leaves of the ash tree can be used to bring on prophetic dreams and can be used to protect a house or another specific area. So this protection can actually 
be used to prevent illness or bring on healing. And when you look at wands that are made from ash in modern witchcraft, they tend to be healing type wands. And one of these details made me laugh. So in the book I have, it says that ash attracts lightning. So don't stand beneath one during an electrical storm. But lightning can totally represent Harry here, and he is absolutely smitten with the firebolt and is so tempted to blow his entire savings on it. So, attracts lightning? Yes, I would say the firebolt absolutely attracted Harry, and he just cannot help himself but go by the window to look at it every day while he's in Diagon Alley, just hoping that he can buy it. So both Odin and Thor were said to possess magical spears made of ash wood. And the words for ash and spear are actually related because uh, the Anglo-Saxon word for spear was ask, A-E-S-C, and the Norse word for ash was ask, A-S-K. And it struck me that the image of a spear being thrown through the air seems very similar to the image of a broom flying through the air. Ash was also one of the traditional woods used for the Yule log, and in our modern era, it is considered the most highly valued firewood. And then in British folklore, it had protective and healing properties, especially with children. So children who were ill were passed through a cleft in the ash tree in order to cure them, but then after that, they would be considered linked. So the person and the tree would be considered linked. So anything that happened to the tree would manifest in the life of the person that it had healed. So people became very protective of the ash trees that healed them in childhood. Ash has large roots that sink deep into the ground. And for the Celts, this was a symbol of people's ability to sort of dig inward and reflect. And it also was a symbol of stability and security. And also it represented a connection between the sky and the earth and let energy flow between the two. And again, flight, connecting life on the ground with life up in the air and being able to represent that on a broomstick as well, or at least get close to what that is while you're on a broomstick. Ash trees were also associated with young warriors, and it was a tree that was very important to Poseidon, and the wood had a reputation of being a way to protect yourself from drowning, perhaps because Poseidon liked it so much. I also read that ancient traditions said that ash has a power over snakes. They flee before it, and Pliny has written that a snake would rather throw itself into a fire pit before going into a circle of ash leaves. So do we think this has anything to do with the beef between acromantulas and basilisks? Just some food for thought, because that's what I thought of when I was reading it. I was like, oh, this probably definitely has something to do with their beef. Let me know. And then when we look into birch trees, because the firebolt has birch twigs, it's associated with Thor. It's associated with protection, exorcism, purification. It protects against lightning and the evil eye. And I don't know if you can hear my cat, but he's having a blast. And traditional witch brooms in witchcraft and Wicca, their brooms tended to be made of birch twigs. So there's a traditional element here that J.K. Rowling has brought in. 
They are common around the world because they can grow pretty much everywhere. They can grow in soil that isn't fertile. They can grow in places that have been decimated by wildfires. And they were some of the first trees to grow in areas after the glaciers receded after the last ice ages. It also is used for burning and creating fire because it has a high combustibility even when it's damp. So it's a symbol of growth, renewal, stability, adaptability, new beginnings, regeneration. And the Celtic birch is the first tree of the Celtic tree alphabet. And it's celebrated during Samhain, which is a pagan holiday that takes place the same time as Halloween. And quote, bundles of birch twigs were used to drive out the spirits of the old year, unquote. It was also connected to Beltane, which is another pagan holiday, uh, which is also called May Day, because it's also a symbol of fertility. So throughout Scotland, the Beltane fires were made of birch and oak, and birch trees could also be used as maypoles as well during those celebrations. And not only are birch trees associated with Thor, but it's also associated with the goddesses Venus, Freya, Frigga, and Estra. And it also had healing properties. So the leaves are a diuretic and an antiseptic. And they can help with UTIs, kidney and bladder stones, rheumatism, gout, and muscle pain. Taking all of that into account, the firebolt is powerful. It's probably a safe, stable broom to be on. It attracts lightning, aka Harry wants to buy it. It's highly valued firewood, but we see it highly valued in a different way here. It's an expensive broomstick. People can't stop looking at it. And it's a pioneer, just like birch trees being the first to grow after the Ice Age. The firebolt is a pioneer in the way that it's a trailblazer, maybe, for new forms of broomsticks. Meanwhile, Ron's wand is willow, 14 inches, with unicorn hair. So we went over the wand wood and the core in previous episodes. So I'm just going to touch on it quickly here. So as a reminder, unicorn hair produces the most consistent magic, which Ron really needs after last year. It's the most difficult to turn to the dark arts. It's the most faithful of cores, and it's prone to melancholy if they're mishandled and the hair may need replacing. Willow, which is what Lily's wand is made out of, is an uncommon wand wood with healing power, has a reputation for enabling advanced nonverbal magic. The owners have great potential with unwarranted insecurities. And so willow wands tend to be owned by people who are more open-minded and aren't cocky about their abilities. So for Ron, this really means a lot. He finally has his own wand, and based on the characteristics, it's going to be one that works well for him and really pushes him forward as a wizard, I think. It also fits Ron from what we know about him, you know, difficult to turn to the dark arts. We know where he stands on that. He's been by Harry's side helping him go against Voldemort and protect non-purebloods since day one. It's a faithful core and he's a faithful person. And when it comes to unwarranted insecurities, we saw Ginny's insecurity last book about having secondhand things to come to school with and we see Ron's moment where Harry first comes to his house and I don't think it's a reach to say that he probably has similar insecurities like Ginny does but with his character and his potential it seems like he doesn't need to be insecure about anything. 
it doesn't matter if he doesn't have the money for new for new things he's doing fine skill wise so also in this beginning we see Ginny's major crush on harry has not gone away it says quote Ginny, who had always been very taken with harry seemed even more heartily embarrassed than usual when she saw him perhaps because he had saved her life during their previous year at hogwarts unquote and i think it's so cute and I just feel bad for Ginny because I feel like I've totally been there where, like, you really like this guy, but, like, you're not cool enough to, like, pull off, like, talking to him, so you're just kind of, like, blushing in the corner, like, oh my god, please don't look at me, but, like, please look at me. I can fully relate to this, (laughs) unfortunately. So then we get more insight into Dumbledore. We've talked about Dumbledore's respect and his power, and we see more of that, especially when um, Arthur and Molly are talking about whether or not to tell Harry about Sirius Black. So Molly says, quote, Well, Arthur, you must do what you think is right, but you're forgetting Albus Dumbledore. I don't think anything could hurt Harry at Hogwarts while Dumbledore is headmaster, unquote. And Harry agrees with her. He says... Quote, but Harry happened to agree wholeheartedly with Mrs. Weasley that the safest place on earth was wherever Albus Dumbledore happened to be. Didn't people always say that Dumbledore was the only person Lord Voldemort had ever been afraid of? Surely Black, as Voldemort's right-hand man, would be just as frightened of him? Unquote. And then to finish off chapter four, it says... And then there were these Azkaban guards everybody kept talking about. They seemed to scare more people senseless, and if they were stationed all around the school, Black's chances of getting inside seemed very remote, unquote. So Harry is trusting the systems that are in place, which I don't think is a bad thing. Dumbledore has never given him a reason to distrust him. We know for a fact that Voldemort has always been scared of Dumbledore, and In the last two books, I literally just had this epiphany right now. The two times that Harry goes against Voldemort has been when Dumbledore has not been at Hogwarts. He was called away to London in book one, and then he was driven out of the school by Lucius Malfoy in book two, leaving Harry to fend for himself. Other than that, Harry Potter has been perfectly safe at Hogwarts. Well, maybe not perfectly safe, but relatively safe at least from facing Voldemort face to face. (laughs) Okay, he's been like somewhat safe. Let's just put it that way. And people haven't really had a reason to think the Azkaban guards bad at their job. You know, there's some speculation as to like, how did Sirius Black escape Azkaban? But no one's blaming the Dementors because if they thought the Dementors were at fault, they definitely would not have been bringing the, suggesting bringing them into Hogwarts, right? So everybody's trusting the systems that are in place right now to keep everyone safe and protected. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? And do you think this trust is misplaced? Why or why not? I would love to hear your thoughts on this, and I would love to hear your first impressions of Prisoner of Azkaban, especially compared to the last two books we read. So you can DM me on Instagram, which is at firstyearspod, or you can email us at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. Next episode, you just need to read chapter five, and I will see you guys then.
First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources for our episodes can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D I T T M E I E R. Special thanks goes to, of course, J.K. Rowling, who's the author of our main source, Harry Potter.